you think we'd give you a few days off, but uh, I guess you had surgery Wednesday, so you ought to be back by Sunday, shouldn't you? All right, well, it is great to see you guys. If you have your Bible, please open up to the book of Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 27 this morning. Going to be looking at the ironies of the cross. I love things that are ironic because they make me, they make me laugh. <clears throat> had, a, had someone call recently and they, they wanted some marriage counseling. And I knew that they were already seeing a counselor. So I said, well, what's wrong with the, the guy that you're going to see? And they said, well, he just filed for divorce. And so <laughs> I thought I'd better change a little bit. <clears throat> or what about, anybody, you still do, do Facebook a little bit? You're lying. I know you do. I, I see you on it. What about when somebody gets on Facebook and they write a long post about how useless Facebook is? Doesn't that defeat the purpose when you get on Facebook to say how useless Facebook actually is? I heard about a man, and he was in need of medical help. Couldn't move, and so he, he was outside. He had his cell phone. He called 911. They said, sir, we're going to dispatch an ambulance to you as quickly as we can. You just stay right there. He said, I'm not going anywhere. A few moments later, he heard the ambulance coming. He heard the sirens. He got excited until the ambulance ran over him. That's sad, but it is funny. It really is. <laughs> there was a, a group that was anti-technology. They saw that technology was killing the next generation. And so they were trying to get support, and they were trying to gather a group of people who would fight technology with them. The problem was that they were finding a difficult time getting participants, and so they met, and they decided that we need to build a website to get participants in our anti-technology group, and so that's what they did. Do you know what the most shoplifted book in America is? It's the Bible. McDonald's employees, they have an uh, employee website they go to, and they can see all about the company's policies. And in one area, they have a, a section that deals with health-related issues. And on McDonald's website to their employees, they urge their employees not to eat McDonald's hamburgers or french fries because they are so bad for your health. That'll make you scratch your head and think just a little bit. Remember the old comedian Charlie Chaplin? Charlie Chaplin once entered a Charlie Chaplin lookalike contest, and he came in third place. <clears throat> Apparently, there are two people that look more like Charlie Chaplin than Charlie Chaplin looks like Charlie Chaplin. It just, it doesn't make a lot of sense. The first man to survive going over Niagara Falls, big waterfall, he got himself in a barrel and he rode Niagara Falls all the way down. It was all over the news. It was exciting. Can't believe he lived past this. And a few days later, he slipped on an orange peel, and it killed him. Gary Kremen, the founder of Match.com, encouraged everyone he came into contact with to join Match.com. He even encouraged his girlfriend to join it, who later left him because she found someone more suitable on Match.com. <clears throat> I went to a shop the other day, and they had a sign on the door and it said, we can fix anything. In bold letters, they were proud of it. 
Then there was a handwritten note below it that said, doorbell's broken, knock hard. <laughs> Irony is all around us. It's even in literature. You might remember the, the old wonderful story of Romeo and Juliet. Romeo and Juliet, they love each other with all their heart, but they cannot be together because their families despise each other. Juliet is to be married to another man, and so she comes up with a plan. She makes this concoction of drugs, and it's supposed to make her to where she appears to be dead, but once the medication wears off, she comes back to life. Romeo is supposed to get the plan and come and rescue her, and they will go away and live happily ever after. Problem is, Romeo never got the plan. And so Juliet takes the concoction, the family takes her to their crypt, and when Romeo comes up, he finds Juliet what he believes to be dead. He cannot imagine living life without the one that he loves. And so he takes a bottle of poison and he drinks the poison. He falls over dead about the same time that Juliet begins to stir from her slumber. Juliet wakes up and she sees the one that she loves and he is dead. And she cannot imagine living life without Romeo. And so the story goes, she picked up the dagger and she slammed it into her chest. Irony is all around us. I think about David and Bathsheba, a great king. A man who united a nation. A man who built a defense system. But one day his lust got the best of him. And he slept with a woman who lived across the street. He later found out that this one night stand led to her becoming pregnant. And he wanted to fix it. He thought, I can cover this up. And so he called her husband home from battle. Thinking that he would be with his wife. And then he would think the child was his but the man, Uriah, had so much character, he had so much integrity that he would not go in and be with his wife. And so finally David realized that he must send Uriah back into battle and have him killed in battle. Once Uriah was killed, David took the woman as his wife, and now he looked like the hero to everyone in town. But God knew the truth. And so God told Nathan the prophet to go to David. And Nathan goes and he tells a story to David. He says, King, I need some help with a judicial issue. There's a rich man and he's got lots of livestock. And there's a poor man and he has one little lamb. One little lamb is like a pet to him. He takes care of it day and night. The rich man had company coming over, so he needed to prepare supper. And rather than going and taking one of his own sheep, he went and took the poor man's. And he slaughtered it, and he fed it to his guest. King, what should we do? David was angry. He said, this man must surely die, and he must repay it four times the amount. And then the irony comes as Nathan points to David, and he says, you are the man. There is irony all around us. <clears throat> irony makes things come into sharp focus. I read a book recently by D.A. Carson, and it was talking about the crucifixion and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the ironies of the cross that go with it. And it really began to challenge me 
And I want to present some of that to you this morning because I believe if we could get an understanding of the crucifixion and of the resurrection, it would change our life. It would change the way that we live. It would change the way that we act. And it would put a new zeal in our relationship with God. At the point in our text, Jesus has been in the public eye for two to three years. He is despised by the religious and the political authorities around him. They resent his popularity, they fear his political power, and they are suspicious of his motives. They wonder if he could have enough followers to lead a revolt against the Roman Empire. And so they come to one conclusion, and that is that Jesus must be stopped. Jesus, no matter what it takes, Jesus must be stopped. And so they come together with a plan, and they put a sort of a kangaroo court together, and they find Jesus guilty of treason. And so the text in front of us this morning We pick up immediately after the sentence has been passed upon Jesus and as he is about to be crucified. You see, in the day of Jesus, once someone was convicted, the punishment came quickly. In America today, the average uh, prisoner that is going to be executed will wait 15 years before they're actually executed. But in this day, it would take place within a few hours or at most within a few days. And so look with me, Matthew 27, beginning in verse 27. Matthew 27, verse 27. It says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail Jesus, King of the Jews. And they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, and they put his own clothes on him, and they led him away to be crucified. Jesus had already been flogged once. He has been beaten once, and then there was a trial, and now they take him and they flog him again. Now, that is standard procedure, but the text that we just read is not standard procedure. It's as if we get the details that are going on behind the scene. And I want you to picture it in your mind this morning. As they look to Jesus and they strip him of his clothes and they drape some sort of scarlet robe around his shoulders. Kings would wear scarlet and so they are beginning to set Jesus up as a king. And they find a vine that has thorns all over it. And I'm not talking about little thorns. I'm talking about thorns that are five to seven inches long. And they wrap this around into a crown. And one takes the crown, and he does not just set it atop the head of Jesus. He pushes the thorns down into the skull of Jesus. 
And they are mocking that he is the king. What a king that we have in front of us. And they find something that resembles a staff or a scepter. And they put it in Jesus' right hand. And then the Bible says they begin to fall down in front of Jesus as they say, Hail Jesus, King of the Jews. Over and over again, Hail Jesus, King of the Jews, as Jesus stands there in this outfit they've created for him. The Bible says they continue, and one by one they come to the face of Jesus and they spit upon him. Over and over. And as this is happening, they're laughing and they're carrying on and they're having a good time. And then the Bible says they take that that scepter and they begin to beat Jesus with it. They swing it as hard as they can across the body of Jesus. Boisterous laughter as they say, aren't you the king? Aren't you the king of the Jews? Aren't you supposed to be the Messiah? You don't look like a king to us. And they're mocking and they're making fun. But all the while, Matthew knows and God knows and the readers know and we know that Jesus actually is the king of the Jews. And even more so than being king of the Jews, he is the king and he is the ruler over everything that has ever existed. And when you look in your Bible and you look specifically through the gospel of Matthew, you will see that Matthew is making that point clear from the very beginning to the very end. When you look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it begins to talk about the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The Old Testament believers were looking for the Messiah who would come and he would sit on the throne of David. The wonderful, mighty counselor, the mighty God. When the Magi come in chapter 2, they come looking for the one who has been born the king of the Jews. As Jesus goes out in his ministry, he begins with the Sermon on the Mount that we've been studying. And he is setting up the keys to the kingdom. He tells parables in which he makes it clear that he is the king. Matthew is making it clear every page along the way that Jesus is the king. And now we see in this scene in front of us that the soldiers are laughing laughing and they're carrying on and they're having a good time as they make fun of Jesus because there is no way that this man is a king. What kind of king is this? What kind of king is it that is tortured? What type of king is it that is humiliated? What type of king is it that cannot defend himself? And so they are going on and they are going on and they are going on. But I want to remind you what Paul says. Paul says that there is coming a day that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. There is coming a day when all the mockers and all of those who ridicule and all those who scoff will see Jesus for what he really is. The problem is during this time, kings reigned with power. Kings reigned with authority. And as we see Jesus, he is going to be killed. What kind of king is that? 
Flip over to Matthew chapter 20. Let's take a little, a little segue right here. Matthew chapter 20. We're going to look at verses 20 through 28, just kind of summarize a little bit. Matthew chapter 20. A mama comes to Jesus with a request. Don't you love mamas? Mamas are not bashful. Mamas are not scared. Mamas will do whatever it takes for their children. And so a mama comes up to Jesus. She's the mama of James and John, the disciples. And she says, Jesus, I have a request. And Jesus says, what is it that you want? And she said, see these boys of mine, James and John? I would like it if one could sit on your right and if one could sit on your left. I want them to have power. I want them to have prestige. I, I want their life to be a life of, of something great. Make them the top leaders of your cabinet, the secretary of state, the secretary of defense. Give them these high and these lofty positions. And the other disciples that the text says get angry, not because of this, this unrespectful request, but they get angry because they did not think of it first. They say, that sounds like a good idea. And they're picturing this kingdom to where they will rule with power and with might. And then Jesus comes, look around verse 26, and he begins to set the stage for the kingdom. He says, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give, him, give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Kings and rulers and presidents, they rule out of this sense of self-promotion, out of this sense of wanting to be number one, out of this sense of entitlement. But as Jesus exercises his authority, as Jesus exercises his kingship, he said, I have come to look out for my people. I have come to put my life on the line for the ones whom I love. Jesus claimed to be the king, but he had no pretensions of a king. That's why Pilate could not understand him. That's why the world, even to this day, has no idea what that is about. But I want to tell you that there is coming a day when Jesus will return and he will look a little more like what we're used to as a king. It says in Revelation chapter 19, listen to this. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And at his head there are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and his thigh he has the name written the king of kings and the lord of lords and my question for you this morning is that your king 
Is he your king? Because here's what I fear. I fear that we are more like those soldiers than we would like to admit. I fear that there are churches all across America this morning and there are people sitting in pews and they say with their mouth that Jesus is my king, Jesus is my Lord, Jesus is the king over my life, but there is nothing in their life that proves it. They say it with their words, but their actions do not match it. And I'm afraid that what we want is not a king, but we want a monarch. We don't want a king. We want Queen Elizabeth II. Do you know what Queen Elizabeth does for Great Britain? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. You know what the, the royal website says? The royal website says that she no longer has political or an executive role in the government. The parliament passes the legislation. The prime minister is the head of the government. The queen is just there for this. Listen, she is there for tradition, and she is there for a sense of security. She's there for tradition, and she is there for a sense of security and symbolism. And if we're honest... That's what a lot of people want in Jesus. I want Jesus. I want his tradition because my my grandparents went to church. My great-grandparents went to church. I love the history. I love the tradition of Christianity. I want the security of it because it, it feels good when I lay down at night to say that Jesus is my king. But I do not want Jesus to have any authority in my life. And I just want to propose to you this morning that if that is true of your life, Jesus is not satisfied. He's not interested in titles. He's not interested in what you're going to call him. He demands to be the king of your life in every way. He demands to be the king that comes in and totally transforms your life. That is what biblical salvation is. It's just like this, this ring that I wear every day. It was 13 years ago. She nodded. That's right. 13 years ago, <clears throat> we stood before a crowd of people. Brother Charles was there, my wife, and we made promises, promises to each other. And we sealed those promises with this ring. But I want to tell you, this ring does not make me married. My wife expects a lot more out of me than just to wear this ring. My wife expects me to come home every day. My wife expects that she is the only woman in my life. My wife expects me to love her. She expects me to be devoted to her. She expects me to provide for my family. She has a whole lot of expectations out of me that I better meet and I have a whole lot of expectations out of her that she better meet. It's not just the ring. It's not just the symbolism. But there are Christians who are holding on to a time when they went through the symbol of baptism. We're going to be baptizing here in a little bit. Baptism does not save us. <clears throat> baptism is a symbol of what the Lord has done in our life. Baptism is when we get in front of people and we say, My life was changed because of the blood of Jesus, and I am proud of that. And I want to live the rest of my life to honor him. And so my question is this, is Jesus the king of your life? Is he the king of your life in action? What has following Jesus changed for you in your life? Now I want to show you one more thing and we're going to be done quickly. 
continue, let's look at verse 32 and 40. Back to Matthew 27. Matthew 27, beginning in verse 32. And the Bible says, as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. And they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And when they sat down and kept watch over him there. And other, and over his head they put a charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God. Come down from the cross. What we see in this, this passage is the demonstration of how weak and how powerless Jesus is. In the Roman world, they would often leave the vertical member of the cross in place and once someone was set out to be executed, they would carry the horizontal member of the cross. They would carry it to the place of crucifixion. But the Bible presents to us that Jesus is so weak. He is in such a place where he has no power that he cannot even carry that board across his back. And so the soldiers tell this man named Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross for him. Victims were crucified completely naked. It was a, a way to not only bring physical pain, but also shame and humiliation across their body. It says in verse 36, in sitting down, the soldiers kept watch. At earlier times in Roman history, there were individuals who were crucified, and the guards left, and family or friends came, and they took the body down, and the individual would live. By this time in Roman history, it was policy that the guards would stay put until the criminal was absolutely dead. When verse 36 says they kept watch, it means that there is no hope. It means that there is no rescue. And so here is Jesus, and he is suffering an immeasurable amount of pain. He is shamed in an intolerable way. His body is broken, and his spirit is crushed. And we'll read in verses 39 and 40 that people come by and they say, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. <clears throat> if you're the Son of God, where's your power? If you're the Son of God, why don't you come down off the cross? Because you'll remember earlier in the life of Jesus, he made the statement, that the temple would be destroyed and he would rebuild it. Now that would be a huge feat. It would take lifetimes to build a temple. We have pre-manufactured homes today and they can go up in a matter of days. Skyscrapers go up in uh, a few years. 
But in, in even, even earlier times in Europe, the great cathedrals, none of those were built in the lifetime of the original architect. It would take years and years to build. And so when Jesus makes this claim, it is an incredible claim of power. But yet now Jesus is hanging on this cross. And there's shame and there's pain and there's no power. And so there's mocking and there's ridicule. And you might say, well, where's the power? Where's the power of Jesus? But I want to present to you this fact this morning, that at any moment, Jesus could have called down legions of angels, that is, thousands of angels, and he could have come down off of that cross. It is the power of Jesus that he stayed on that cross. It is the love of Jesus that he stayed on that cross, and he took your sin, and he took my sin. Every sin that we've ever committed, he took on his body. He could have come down. He could have shown his power in the moment, but instead he showed his power for all of eternity. Do you remember what the temple is? The temple is the meeting place between a sinful man and a holy God. That was the temple in the Old Testament. But because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, he is now the temple. He is now the meeting place. It is through the shed blood of Jesus that sinful men and women can now come into the presence of God. And so as he stood on that cross, as he hung on that cross, he seemed utterly powerless. But in that moment, he showed more power than we could even imagine. And he did it out of a love for you and a love for me. And there are times in our life that what we need most of all is just to step back and to say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. It is because of the cross that I can find salvation. It is because of the cross that my life counts. It is because of the cross that my life matters. Thank you, Jesus, for taking the beating, for taking the spit upon your face, for taking the nails in your hands and in your feet, for taking the shame and the ridicule because you love me so very much. It says in Matthew 16, Jesus was walking one day, and he looked to his followers, his disciples, and he said, who do people say that I am? They said, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets. Then he said, but who do you say that I am? You'll remember Peter spoke up. Peter said, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Bingo. That's good, Peter. Jesus goes on, and he begins to talk about what is to happen next. And he talks about that he is going to be handed over, that he is going to be killed, and three days later, he's going to rise again. Peter did not like this. To Peter, if Jesus is the Messiah, he wins, he does not lose. To Peter, if Jesus is the king, then he is victorious, and there is no defeat. And so the text says that Peter pulled Jesus aside and catch this, he began to rebuke Jesus. Now, if you ever rebuke Jesus, you're in a bad spot, right? But he begins to rebuke Jesus. Jesus, that cannot be true. What you're saying is not right. And Jesus responded and he said, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but rather the things of men. And then he says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. 
For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for mine, he it is that will find it. And so he says, if you want to be my follower, I've shown you what to do. It's not about you. It's not about your power. It's not about your rights. It's not about what you've earned. It's not about what you deserve. If you want to be a follower, it means that you take up this instrument of of death. To carry a cross is not an idiom. To carry a cross does not mean that you're going to go to work even though it's tough. To carry a cross means that your life is no more and that you wake up every day to live for Jesus. To carry your cross means that he is the king. To carry your cross means that he has the power. To carry your cross means that he has the authority. To carry your cross means that you are a living sacrifice and you place yourself under his headship. Let me ask you to close your eyes and bow your head. And I want you to answer the simple question. Is Jesus the king of your life? It's real simple this morning. Is Jesus the king of your life? of your life. I'm not asking for your words. I'm not asking if you've ever said that. But I'm asking you if Jesus is really and truly the king of your life. If you're being baptized this morning, let me encourage you to go ahead and make your way. You see, when Jesus is the king of our life, it's more than a symbol. It's more than a tradition. When Jesus is the king of our life, it means that absolutely everything changes. When Jesus is the king of our life, it means that we pick up our cross and that we follow him. When Jesus is the king of our life, our co-workers will see it. Our classmates will see it. Our spouse will see it. Everyone who comes into contact with us will see it. And so is Jesus truthfully and honestly the king of your life? Now, there's two decisions that might need to be made with that. There may be someone here this morning, and you might say, I've never surrendered my life to the king. And if that's the case, today is a great time to do so. If the Holy Spirit is leading you to salvation, I pray that you'll come down and you will set that right today. It may be that there's some here and You know that you've been saved, but if you're honest, you're going to say, I've been living for myself more than I have Jesus. And so there's some things that need to change. There's some priorities that need to be realigned correctly. There's some choices that need to be made differently in order to give Jesus that number one spot again in your life. So first, is he the king of your life? Secondly, do you realize what he's done for you? Do you realize the price that he's paid on your account? Do you realize that he has taken every sin you've ever committed and he's taken that upon his body? And maybe you need to just have a time where you thank God for his sacrifice. Maybe you need to come to an altar and you need to cry out, thank you, Lord, for what you've done for me. Maybe right where you are, you need to cry that out. Thank you, Lord, for what you have done for me. Maybe you need to join a church. Whatever decision you need to make, I pray you'll be obedient. Lord, we thank you for this time that we've had together. God, I pray that you've been glorified. I pray that you have been honored. 
And Lord, I pray that your will will be done during this time of invitation. Lord, we ask all this in your name. Amen. Stand with us. Let's sing together. Just as I am without one service this morning. Let me just encourage you one quick thing, and then we're going to be moving on to our baptismal service. Be a little different this morning, but we like things that are different. Amen. Uh, I want to encourage you uh, to really pray about Saturday night. Saturday night's a steak fellowship. Uh, we're doing ribeye steaks with baked potatoes, salad, uh, blackberry cobbler, and rolls, and dessert, uh, tea, for five bucks. Now I want to tell you, let me just shoot straight with you. We're not doing that so you can get fat on a ribeye steak. 
we're doing that so you'll buy some tickets for somebody that doesn't know Jesus and you bring them here that night. And we'll have some music. It'll be a great time of fellowship. Brother Herman Kramer is just going to share a word with us on Saturday night. But if you know someone that needs a church home, you know someone that's lost, that doesn't have Christ as their Savior, uh, you, you invite them to come. The object is you buy yourself a ticket and then buy them a ticket and then you bring them on that Saturday night. And folks, if we do that, we'll see a tremendous harvest. We'll see a tremendous harvest, all right? Now, our children are coming in uh, back They're with parents. Uh, if you see them, you see one of yours, reach out and snap him there uh, as he's uh, trolling by. But they're going to join us in here for the baptismal service also. And while we're just kind of moving around, we're going to kind of sing a little bit and, and uh, just kind of move around a little bit. If you have someone that is being baptized today, uh, a nephew, a son, a daughter, granddaughter, any family relation whatsoever, any family relation whatsoever, we're going to ask you to just get up from where you are, come up the stairs, uh, on the outside stairs, and head straight for the baptistry back here in the choir loft. You're going to get a first-hand seat, uh, not a seat, you're going to stand there and watch your loved ones being baptized this morning, Okay. You understand that? If you've got anybody that's kinfolk, you come right on that outside part right there and go up in the back of the choir loft there. Help them back there, Wes, if you would. Make sure they get in the, right there and just kind of fill in that choir loft. Now let's sing while they're walking, okay? Blessed are Jesus is Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born of His Spirit, washing His blood. This is my story, this is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Perfect submission, perfect delight, visions of rapture now burst on my side. Angels descending, bring from above, echoes of mercy and whispers of love. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all and long. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Okay, and we got all the families and everybody up there, okay? Now, for the rest of us, everyone who can, now if you're not physically able, you just had hip surgery, don't you do this. But if you haven't had hip surgery and you're physically able, I want you to stand where you are and we're just gonna come forward and fill this stage up in this choir loft up here and we're just gonna gather at the river, okay? While we're watching them being baptized. 
Let's sing another verse. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all day long. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all day long. Perfect submission, all is at rest. I am my Savior and happy and blessed. Watching and waiting, looking about, filled with His goodness, lost in His love. This is my story, this is my song. Praising my Savior all day long. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Well, as we gather here to baptize this afternoon, let me just remind you again. It's already been reminded, but I remind you again that this water doesn't save anybody, but this is a public profession of faith. The Bible says uh, in Acts 20, uh, in Acts 2, verse 41 and 42, that uh, when they received Jesus, they were baptized and they followed in the steadfastness of the Word of God. And that's exactly what these folks are doing. And I encourage you, if you're here in this congregation and you've not done that yet, then you make that public profession of faith. Guys, there's really no reason not to be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. Play lead us on. All right. Have y'all ever seen a smile like this on somebody's face? <laughs> it's pretty cool. Every day, every day. It hadn't been for that long, though, J.L. Eight months ago, J.L. was living in the woods back behind the Waterburger on Highway 80. And um, he came to realization that he knew something in his life needed to change. So he cried out unto the Lord, just like the psalmist said, as his boat was being tossed to and fro and going up to the heights of heaven and the depths of hell and he stumbled around as a drunken man and then he came to his wits end and he cried out unto the Lord and the Lord delivered him out of all of his trouble broad is the way that leads to destruction and many will find that road and many people walk that road but narrow is the path that leads to salvation. And it said it's hard to find, but J.L. found that path. So J.L., you turned your life over to Jesus Christ. You asked him to be Lord of your life. So no longer are you gonna live the same life you lived before because you're a new creation in him. It says old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So today, we're gonna to baptize you and we know that this water is just a representation of what Jesus did for us. He died and was buried and he was raised to new life. And that's what he told us to do, to tell everybody out there what's happened to you. The old man is going to be buried and the new man is going to be raised up. So today, JL, I'm going to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Buried with Christ, raised to walk with newness of life. Sherry was with him on some of that experience. I'm going to take your glasses off or you're going to get them wet too. 
And, <laughs> and as a result of his salvation, she led him. Uh, he led her to the Lord. And it's a beautiful thing. And so her life is no longer the same. And Sherry, you've turned your life over to Jesus and you've asked him to come into your heart and be Lord of your life like Brother Case was preaching a while ago. And what are those tears from? Happiness. Happiness? Isn't that great? <laughs> so today, Sherry, I baptize you in the name of the Father, in the Son, in the Holy Spirit. Christ, and raised to walk in the supply.